Our reading today is from the poetry anthology, Living in the Land of the Dead, which is a collection of poems by the unhoused residents of the Tenderloin in San Francisco, put out by the UU Street Ministry, The Faithful Fools. The poem I'd like to share with you is titled Ash Wednesday and is written by Chris Trion. I mark my forehead with the ashes of the burning world, with the ashes of the burning people who are dying of our burning soul. And it is our soul. The living two are on fire. Our ashes are mixed together in the crematorium of history for this unnecessary sacrifice. I anoint my forehead with the sign of a crucified planet, like a third eye it sees in the darkness. Million billions of victims put to death for thinking as though God gave us not our brains and wills, as though it was a crime to be human and to doubt the status quo of the law. I mark my brow with the new law, a communion of sinners, not just saints, the sign of the cross like any two cross streets on any intersection in America, intersection of hope and fear, intersection of survival and death, intersection where the darkness meets the darkness and the light kisses the light. Something is opened up and something is held up like a heart between the eyes crying like a newborn child. The child is hope, the ashes are the past. The mark on my forehead is a scarecrow burned and pierced with arrows signaling to the sisters and brothers who find themselves with nowhere to sleep. And though many have homes, there's still nowhere to sleep in America this Ash Wednesday. I mark my forehead with the ashes of the Phoenix. The Phoenix is the citizenry of the world. It rises awkwardly like a bumblebee on wings too small for its great bulk. 10 billion people's worth of bulk, or is it bigger? Soon there will be more people than there are stars. The stars too are homeless and the black holes are ash marks on the forehead of God. Everything mourns for this wrong direction time has taken, which only space can save. Not the space on the streets or in the end, but the space in the heart where all the burning buildings gather, people leaping from their roofs. It's not the fault of politics or politicians only. They will have their reward. It's the fault of the loss of our memory that we were connected once, that we are the holy grail of immortality, that we are one flesh that the ashen cross was once a living tree with 10 billion leaves, that we are that tree of life. The fire is not a Holocaust, but a holy cost. And that cost is simple, that we see ourselves in the faces of those who ashes we wear, whose faces we see tied to the crossroads of everywhere. There's no time to wait for a savior. We must be that savior or go in sackcloth and ashes backward into the dinosaurs because she dances to a different drummer who knows nothing of Wednesdays or ashes. A planet who still remembers how to dance on the point even if her children have fallen. Because a new plague is upon us and its name is ignorance and denial and no flower scent can mask its death. Ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down, or maybe not. The choice must be made today. So good morning, my name is Eli Poor and I use they them pronouns and I'm really excited to be with you all today. So this is actually my first guest preaching gig outside of seminary or my home congregation and I'm really excited to be able to share this experience with you all this morning. And I also tell that to you to uh, help you manage your expectations a little bit. 
So I'll be talking this morning about relationships and connection. Uh, I believe that these both are so important. So in that spirit, I'd like to offer a short introduction. I'm currently a UU seminarian at Star King School for the Ministry, and I'm serving as the community ministry intern at my home congregation in Corpus Christi on the Gulf Coast of Texas on Karankawa Kwawitekan land, where I'm coming to you from today, live and in color from my spare bedroom. My personal spiritual practices embrace Sufi, Buddhist, pagan, yogic, Vedantic, Christian, and mystical traditions. I'm a member of the Ruhaniyat Sufi order, have practiced Buddhist meditation for many years now, and consider myself a multi-religious Unitarian Universalist. I'm currently pursuing fellowship with the UUA and I'm exploring community ministry, with my call to ministry centering on exploring the ways that authentic relationship, connection, and creativity can counter oppressive systems and remind us all of our connection to the divine. I hold a few marginalized identities myself and experience the impacts of some of these systems firsthand. I've experienced poverty and been unhoused as an adult. I'm queer, trans, and non-binary. I'm in long-term recovery from a substance use disorder and I'm formerly incarcerated. And while I'm not here today to share these particular parts of my story, I think that they're important for framing what I have to share. And if I'm completely honest also, because I think it's important to challenge common notions, common notions of what an addict or a felon or an unhoused person might look like. So for the past few years, I've been working with a community organizing model that's based on the idea that relationships are the basic unit of social organization and can function as a basic unit of social change. And also that every individual within a particular community has gifts and strengths that can be mobilized to support one another and the community as a whole. This process believes that if real change is to happen within any community, it must be guided and directed by its members. This organizing process is focused on intentionally strengthening relationships within communities and building partnerships, eventually leading to increased agency and an organized community using their gifts to tackle challenges collectively from within. But it's the relationships that remain at the heart of this change. More specifically, in recent months, I've spent time on the streets working with a group which would at first glance appear to challenge all of these notions. After all, how can someone experience the trauma of living on the streets and struggling with addiction and mental health challenges really contribute their strengths and gifts to strengthen their community? But while this process has certainly had its share of challenges, I found ultimately that they have had much to teach us about resilience, connection, and relationship building. They've had much to teach me. We've seen this past year under the COVID-19 pandemic, just how important our connections and relationships with one another are and what can happen when they're drastically interrupted. If you all are anything like me, and I suspect you are, this past year, you've likely struggled with anxiety, loneliness, fear, and a powerful feeling of disconnection and isolation as we've been cut off from our neighbors and friends and loved ones all the relationships which form such essential parts of our lives. The past few months, many of us spent the holidays either alone or connecting with family members on Skype or Zoom rather than risking exposing ourselves or someone that we love. This virus has necessitated that we don't connect in the usual ways with others outside our families too. We have to stay away from one another in public. There are no handshakes or hugs. We can't see one another's faces through the masks that we, well, most of us, where to keep each other safe, which means we can't see each other smile or connect in the usual ways there either. Our interactions have become limited to phone calls or in little boxes like these, 
on a computer screen, which simply don't have the depth and closeness and realness of an in-person interaction. I'm sure that you'll agree that this interruption of our relationships and loss of connection has impacted us all deeply and profoundly. So it's uncomfortable to imagine, but how would it feel if this disconnection were to continue on indefinitely? How would this impact your psyche, your body, and your soul? When we talk about poverty, it's generally in terms of a lack of money or resources. And while this characterization is certainly true, the poverty that impacts the unhoused community, perhaps most profoundly, particularly many of those who experience chronic houselessness, is a poverty of connection. It's a profound loss of relationship, a process of creeping invisibility that renders you unseen, a relegation from a whole complex being with dreams and gifts and hopes to simply a person in need of money, of clothing, of food, of a job, of a car, of a home, which society tells you you're defective somehow in your inability to provide these things for yourself. And while it may be true that these physical needs are there, the more damaging absence that often occurs is that of real human heart-to-heart -heart connection and the sense that you are a person with gifts and capabilities beyond just being on the receiving end of someone handing you a dollar or a bologna sandwich. The way that we've traditionally tried to address this poverty of things as individuals and faith communities is by placing ourselves in the role of the benevolent givers, which allows us to feel great about our own generosity. Our church, church groups had to soup kitchens and shelters en masse and matching t-shirts to hand out meals so that at the end of the day, we can pat ourselves on the backs for our selflessness and compassion. And maybe for a while, these experiences inspire us to reflect on our own blessings and privileges being faced with so many that have so little. And indeed, there's a very real need for some of these things. After all, hungry people need to eat, cold people need warm clothing, houseless people need shelter, and so on. But ultimately, if we don't go any deeper than these transactional relationships, the people that are helped by this model become two-dimensional figures defined only by what they don't have, caricatures of struggle and need. And similarly, the givers in this relationship, too, are also robbed of their complexity and humanity, with both, both groups suffering the loss of not only their own, but also each other's potential. We simply have to go deeper. While I do occasionally use the term experiencing homelessness to denote an event rather than a characteristic, and I absolutely believe that every individual has the right to self-identify, I personally don't often refer to the houseless community as a group or individuals as homeless, in part because of the extreme negative connotation and in part because the term is inaccurate. After all, one can make a home anywhere without necessarily having a physical dwelling. In fact, for the majority of human history, we have lived itinerant lives, moving from place to place as hunter-gatherers. Anthropologists have estimated that this goes back from around 12,000 years ago when we first started settling down and planting crops to around 2 million years ago with the ancestors of Homo sapiens who wandered the earth, gathering food and water wherever both could be found. That's millions of years of existence, living much the way that our neighbors on the streets do. And in this sense, it could be argued that our houses, our cities with their pollution and urban sprawl, and our economic system that relies almost entirely on transactional relationships, when is the last time, for example, that you knew anything about the cashier at Target or the person who delivered your pizza? These things, 
These things are far more unnatural to human beings than living outside in small groups. And about our houses, our houses have become over time much bigger, with the average square footage of an American home more than doubling since 1950. But by contrast, according to a comparison of studies from 1985 and 2004 published by the American Sociological Review, the number of close relationships we have shrunk in that time by nearly 30%, with 25% of people reporting that they had no close friends at all, a number that nearly doubled over that 20 year period. It seems that we have come to value things more than people, objects over relationships, houses over community, and this impacts us in a very real way. We've seen over and over again in numerous studies that having close relationships is every bit of predictor of health as diet, exercise, and smoking. The more we have, the healthier we are. And conversely, lack of connections is correlated with depression, anxiety, and other mental health issues. Poor physical health, including resilience from illness, later life cognitive decline, and increased mortality. One study examining data from over 300,000 people found that a lack of strong relationships increased the risk of premature death from all causes by 50%. An effect on mortality risk roughly comparable to smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day and greater than obesity and physical inactivity. Whether we're housed or unhoused, gay, straight, bisexual, pansexual, or queer, transgender or cisgender, incarcerated or free, addicted or sober, affluent or middle-class or poor, black or white or indigenous or Latinx or Asian or Kenyan or Iranian or Eritrean or Boricua or Roma or Kurdish, whether we're Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu, atheist, pagan, Sufi or Sikh, as our seventh principle, which recognizes the interdependent web of which we all are a part, reminds us, our lives depend on one another. So how do we imagine or reimagine, create or recreate our lives and churches and communities and systems that reflect and support this crucial fact? The concept of shelter or refuge is one that's common in a number of faith traditions. We see this in Buddhist vows in which the adherent takes refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, or spiritual community, a network of sacred cohort that support and promote one another's growth. The idea is also present in the Jewish concept of Shekinah from rabbinic literature, which means dwelling or settling and refers to the dwelling or settling of the divine presence of God. An interesting side note here in the Jewish mystical tradition of Kabbalah, Shekinah is also conceived as the feminine divine. In Islam, the Arabic Sakina, with a similar root and literal meaning as the Hebrew dwelling, refers to the peace of God, and Islamic mysticism can refer to divine inspiration or a quality of spiritual awakening. Numerous chapters of both the Hebrew and Christian scriptures refer to taking shelter or finding refuge in God or in Christ. And in the human sciences, if we go back to Maslow and his infamous hierarchy, we recall from there that shelter is, along with the need for safety and refuge from harm, one of our most basic needs, with relationships right above. We need shelter not only from the weather, but also from our own isolation, and our souls need shelter in one another and in our connection to the divine, wherever we might find it. Most of us are familiar by now with the concept of self-care. It's one of those new buzzwords that people like to toss around, especially my millennial peers. It originally had a more radical origin, as in Audre Lorde's famous quote, which notes, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. 
It is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare, referring to the fact that when systems devalue and dehumanize you as a queer, black, brown, trans, disabled, and or poor, poor person, or any number of other marginalized identities, valuing and humanizing, and even the simple act of caring for yourself can be counter-oppressive. However, these days, like many things in our culture, self-care has been co-opted and commodified, used by Instagram influencers and marketing departments alike to sell skincare products and cruises. And now it's taken on a meeting that's less like restoring one's health and resilience and more like privileged self-soothing with our tanks of hot tea and endless gallons of bubble baths, which is still fun, but not exactly the same and certainly not accessible for everyone, particularly for the poor who might have neither time nor money, nor at times even water to spare. Caring for ourselves is crucial for anyone, but it's particularly crucial for members of oppressed groups. But it's not the whole story. Placing the onus of resilience on the individual dismisses the need for our systems to be sustainable for us. In other words, we can't always pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, especially when we don't have any boots. We need, in addition to caring for ourselves, networks that support community care, which recognize the interconnected nature of human beings. And the time that I've spent working with unhoused communities and my own experience was with being unhoused, I've seen a tremendous amount of trauma and suffering. I've also found their connection and community and instances of caring for one another in ways that we housed folks just don't do, particularly in most white middle-class and affluent neighborhoods. For example, one particular day while my partner and I were working at the camp that we regularly visit, sitting on the sidewalk, talking to some of our unhoused neighbors, one of the young guys that we regularly meet with was having a bad day and had not had his medication in some time. He approached my partner who was seated, standing over her threateningly and pointing his finger in her face saying loudly, you, you did this. And before she and I could even get up, a group of three or four people had surrounded him and very gently and adeptly took him away, reassuring him that my partner had not done anything and that we were friends and that he was safe. They began reassuring us that he was just having a bad day and had some mental health challenges. There was no escalation, there was no violence, no one was hurt or restrained and the police were not called. The community was comfortable with him because he was part of their community and he in return trusted them. How might this have gone differently in our own neighborhoods? And how did relationships make such a difference here? And what would it be like if we responded in a similar way to say, Stephen Taylor, a black man who was killed by police after he was detained in a California Walmart where he had been wielding a bat in the midst of a mental health crisis brought on by his schizophrenia. How would this have been different if people who Steven Taylor knew and trusted that knew him and what he was dealing with, how would it be different if they were there instead? I've seen so many people dealing with so much of their own trauma or in the midst of their own addiction support one another in phenomenal ways giving their last of whatever they had to whoever was in need, caring for and looking out for their neighbors. By contrast, most of us have neighbors we, never, neighbors we never speak to. We don't even know their names and have a little idea of what might be going on in their lives. Ironically, my group came into these relationships with our unhoused neighbors to build community, only to find that this community is already there. Not only that, they had a thing or two to teach us about resilience and selflessness and caring for one another. My friends on the street are not two-dimensional. They're not just in need of some soup or a dollar, though many of them do need these things. 
They also have some serious issues, including the trauma that they endure daily on the streets. There's sometimes violence, there are drugs and dysfunction, and sometimes it can be profound and overwhelming. These things also exist in every neighborhood and every community. But there's so much more to these relationships and more to them as human beings. I believe the problem of poverty and homelessness is best solved by empowering the people who are experiencing it. They are the experts in what works and what doesn't, what they have already and what they might need. And what they need, what they really need is beyond the charity paradigm that perpetuates one up, one down transactional relationships. And though they might absolutely need these things too, it's beyond a hot meal and a hot shower or warm clothing and a bed. What they need is what we all need, community, connection, self-determination. The right to exist in all of our complexity outside of two dimensions, loved and valued as we are. My friends and neighbors need a different sort of shelter. And it's the same kind of shelter that we all need. A shelter grounded in safety and connection within a wider community of care, a sacred shelter that recognizes interrelatedness, that makes wholeness out of disparate and desperate fractures. It's a bitter irony that in many of our own shelters, they've served only to insulate us from one another and from this more wholly complex idea of shelter. We've locked our doors and put bars on our windows. We've installed security systems to keep unwanted people out. We've surrounded ourselves with an abundance of square footage, but we ourselves are suffering from a poverty of connection too. The group that's emerged from our work on the streets was actually inspired before we ever got there. The name that they chose was one that they'd been using for some time, Homeless Helping Homeless. This group is focused on caring for one another in ways that defy and upend our individualistic ways of being in the world based on mutual care and support. Closer to this idea of sacred shelter than anything I've seen elsewhere. They're sometimes not quite convinced of their own gifts, but how true is that for so many of us? What this group has shared with me, the courage, the resilience and the caring has convinced me that they are not just the ones that need us, we need them too. We need the reminders about connection and caring, about the importance of our relationships, reminders about interdependence and resilience and building communities in which people are not defined by what they have or don't have, but instead inspire one another through the ways that they use their individual gifts to make their little corner of the world better somehow. We need the reminders about our own complex, flawed, sacred nature where we can be all at once wise and dirty and caring and addicted and traumatized and funny and knocked down and compassionate and foolish and hurtful and broken and generous and hurting and brilliant and hopeless and kind. They remind us that we can be imperfectly, deeply human and that one doesn't need to be perfect to have an impact. They inspire us to recall what's truly valuable and what real poverty, not a lack of money, but a lack of connection looks like and offer clues as to how it might be remedied. They have much to teach us about how to be in the world without amassing more than we need and much to show us about how to care for one another. With their presence, they ask us to imagine a more equitable world, reminding us that we have much to do and much to learn in order to make room for each other. They remind us that our inherent worth is not determined by what we have or what we've done, and above all, that our lives depend on one another, and that our souls 
and our own very uncertain future as humankind depend on this very recognition. They don't just need us and our dollars and our sandwiches and our agencies and soup kitchens and shelters, but rather they, we, all of us, need shelter of a different, more powerful, more sacred sort. The one that comes not from a structure, but rather manifest when we remember the deep connection that we all share, recalling that none of us are whole until we recognize that we all are holy and that our very lives, psyches, bodies, and souls are profoundly linked to one another. Each of us manifestations of that infinite and intimate collective divine. May we have the courage to remember, foster, and honor the sacredness and power of our relationships. And may we remember that all of us are deeply, powerfully, and irrevocably connected. May you be blessed, may we be blessed, and may we be a blessing to each other. through the hard night.